You are listening to a sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee, the historic church of Robert Murray McShane. For more sermon content, please visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk. Well, good morning, everyone. It's a great privilege to be here with you again. And thank you very much for your prayers. Uh, my home congregation is Bacloo Free Church in Edinburgh. And this weekend is uh, the Open Doors weekend in the city of Edinburgh. So yesterday, the church was open. We had a barbecue. We had home baking. We had about 200, 250 people come into the church. Today, we have a series of guest services. So please continue to pray for Bacloo Church in Edinburgh, St. Columbus Church right near the castle, Derek Lament and the ministry there, Gavino Fioretti and the ministry down in Leith. So we have three free churches currently in Edinburgh. But by the end of October, we may have five. Well, we will have five, all being well, that there will be a church in Craig and Tinney. There will also be a, there is an ongoing church plant in the Brunsfield area. So I know there's a lot of good things happening in, in Dundee, but I can encourage you here in Dundee that there's a lot of good things happening in Edinburgh as well. Now, we're going to read together from God's Word from the first letter of John. John wrote five of the New Testament books. He wrote the gospel that bears his name. He wrote the book of Revelation. He also wrote five letters, uh, three letters, uh, so two plus three equals five. We're going to read from uh, 1 John, which is on page 1,225. Now, when I look at the congregation, I realize that there are many familiar faces, many old friends here, but I also realize that there are many new people in the congregation, which is a great delight. So I can't say for sure where you're coming from. I don't know whether there might be people here for whom the Christian message is a very new message. I don't know whether you come here today as a, as a Christian who is encouraged in your faith, or maybe you find the way of following Jesus difficult. Maybe if you're honest with yourself, maybe you find that you've wandered from that close fellowship with Jesus. But the great thing is, is that this passage that we're going to read together has a word for everyone. It has a word of introduction to those who aren't yet Christians. It has a word of encouragement to those of us who are. It can also be a word of rebuke or correction if you find that you're wandering from the truth. And it can also be a word to strengthen. If you feel that your faith is weak, if you feel that you are tried and tested, these are words from God to strengthen you and to encourage you and to equip you. So we're going to read 1 John chapter 1 and we'll read down into chapter 2. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have touched, uh, which we have touched, uh, this which we which we have which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at, and our hands have touched. This we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared; we have seen it and testify to it, and we proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father. And has appeared to us. We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard, so that you also may have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. We write this to make our joy complete. This is the message we have heard from him and declare to you God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with him, Yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live by the truth. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, 
And the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claimed we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar and his word has no place in our lives. My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have one who speaks to the Father in our defense. Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. We know that we have come to know him if we obey his commands. The man who says, I know him, but does not do what he commands is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But if anyone obeys the word, God's love is truly made complete in him. This is how we know we are in him. Whoever claims to live in him must walk as Jesus did. Amen. And may God bless his word to us this morning. Mark, Mark Twain, the humorous American writer of the 19th century, once said, he said, when I was 18, I realized that my father knew absolutely nothing at all. But by the time I was 21, I was amazed at how much he had learned in such a short amount of time. And Twain captures something of human nature. I wish I could say that I was young, but I'm now firmly within middle age, but When I look back, and especially uh, that my father has now passed away, I realized when I was young that I thought he didn't have any clue as to what life was about. He was too old. And now I wish he was here because there are so many questions I have to ask, so many things that I don't understand, so much advice that I wish I had taken from him when, when I had the opportunity. But we tend, when you're young, you tend to think that the old don't get it. And also, we as modern people or or postmodern people, when we look at the ancient world, we kind of think they were pretty simplistic, pretty naive, uh, pretty limited in their understanding. But this morning, we have the benefit of ancient wisdom from an older man. And we are to listen to what he has to say, because this ancient wisdom isn't just advice from the past, but it's God's word. It's God's truth for us that is timeless. So if you're, if you're a young person here today, don't reject the, the voice of, of an older, wiser man. And as modern people, do, let's not look down on what the ancient people have to say, because we have a timeless word today that cuts across generations, that cuts across culture, and that speaks to our very hearts and to our very lives. Now, my day job, when I'm in the city of Edinburgh, during the week, I'm entrusted with teaching theology. Theology is the study of God, and I hope each one of us here today is a theologian, because a Christian should be one for whom God is at the center of their heart at the center of their mind, at the center of their life. So you are an ongoing student in the great study of who God is. But I've got something to admit to you here. You see, what John does in 16 verses, it would take me 18 weeks at least simply to introduce the themes that John is covering. 
Because in this short passage, what do we have? We have the person of Jesus Christ described to us. We're told that he is human, and we're told that he is divine. We also have the work of Jesus Christ clearly presented before us, what he has come to do. And thirdly, and most challengingly for us, we have the response that is required from us. Because theology is not just an academic subject where you learn and you study and you take examinations or you write essays, where you increase the level of knowledge, you increase your level of understanding, but theology is a study that is meant to be received, applied, and lived. So it's not enough to know. It's not enough to understand. But we're told clearly that the test that God sets is a test of character, is a test of commitment, is a test of application. So this morning, doesn't matter how old you are or how young you are, doesn't matter whether Dundee is your permanent home, whether you're here visiting, doesn't matter whether the country of Scotland, the United Kingdom is your culture or you're from a different culture, whether the language of English is your first language or a language that you've learned while you've uh, studied or traveled. But today, this message is a message for us. Men and women, young and old. And I'd like to notice two critical questions that are asked and answered. The first question that we come to terms with is the who question. Who is John writing about? And the second question is, what does John have to say about that person? Now, I was doing a children's talk two weeks ago in Baclou, and... um, my illustration was, and if I had gotten here earlier, I, I, I was at prison this morning, so I'm sorry I'm late. But my illustration was a credit card. And I was trying to tell the children, you know, this great card, you can buy anything you want with it. There's only one problem. Every month you get a bill and you have to pay the bill. And as I was showing the card, I took the credit card out of my wallet and I showed it to the children. And I was asking them, what, what was this card? And at, one of the younger children said the answer that they gave was Jesus. And I said, that that is the answer, but that's not the answer to this particular question at this particular time. But the Bible, strangely enough, the answer almost always is Jesus. No matter what the question, no matter what the setting, whether it's Old Testament, New Testament, whether it's a letter or the gospel, whether it's the apocalypse, the book of Revelation, whether it's the book of Genesis, but it doesn't matter what the question is, the answer is Jesus. The question, who, is answered in two ways. Jesus Christ is presented to us as unquestionably a divine person. That John is telling us about one who is God. Look at verse 1, for example. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at, and our hands have touched. From the beginning. This phrase, from the beginning, takes us back to John's gospel. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Takes us back to Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, each one of us has a beginning. October 13th, 1966, that's my beginning. That's when I was born. That's when I came into this world. That's when my life started. Now, Jesus has always been He has no starting point. He has no finishing point. He is past, present, and future. So John tells us that Jesus is eternal. He is the word of life. 
We also see that he is that he has eternal life with the Father in verse two. The life appeared. We have seen it and testified to it, and we proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and has appeared to us. The great message of Christmas. The birth of Jesus is that Jesus, yes, was born, born in Bethlehem, but that's not the beginning of Jesus' story because Jesus has always been with the Father. He is one who has life eternal, an eternal relationship with God the Father, and yet in time he appeared on earth to us. So we're told that he is eternal. We're told that he has a unique relationship with the Father, verse 3. We proclaim what we have seen and heard so that you also may have fellowship with us and our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. You see, each one of us can have a relationship with God, but only Jesus has this unique relationship with God, that God is his Father, that he is God's Son. Now it is true, and the Bible makes this true, John and his gospel makes this true, that when we become Christians, we become part of God's family. But we become adopted into God's family. Jesus, by his very nature, by his very character, is always a part of the family. God's always, God the Father is always the Father. God the Son is always God the Son. But you and I have not always been part of God's family. If you're a Christian here today, when you came to know the Lord Jesus Christ, or as John puts it in John chapter 1, that to those who received him, to those who, be, who, who believed in his name, he, he gave the right to become children of God. I gave you my date of birth, 13th of October, 1966, but I became a part of my family on the 1st of March, 1967. Dennis and Ruth Aykroyd adopted me. I don't really know anything about my life before that, but I know that on that date, the 1st of March, 1967, I became part of a new family. That's what it means to be adopted into God's family, that God takes you and brings you into a new family, into a new relationship, into new privileges, into new responsibilities. But Jesus has this relationship from the very beginning. We're also told in verse 2, or verse 1 of chapter 2, that Jesus Christ is described in a way that only God can be described. My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin, but if anybody does sin, we have one who speaks to the Father in our defense, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. Or quite literally, the righteous. Now in this room today, we have different levels of Bible knowledge. For example, there'll be some people here who know the Bible quite well. There might be some people here for whom the Bible is a new book, and each chapter is a new and an exciting opportunity of finding about God. I would also suggest that in this room, there are people who have varying levels of righteousness. In the sense, righteousness means conformity to a standard. That some will better understand God and better apply the truths of God to their life. But all of these standards are relative. Not one of us can ever be described as the righteous one or the righteous. Because that means that the character, that means that the behavior, that means that the life is in perfect conformity to God. 
That means that every day and every hour of every day, every thought that goes through your mind, every word that comes out of your mouth, every action of your life would be characterized by a righteous requirement completely meeting the standard of God. And that's not you. And that's not me. Any relative distinctions between you and me are irrelevant because each one of us, the Bible tells us, has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, but not Jesus. Jesus is the righteous one. Now, remind yourself of who's the author here. This is an old man by this point, but he once was a young man. He was a fisherman. That was his trade. He actually was part of a family business. His father owned a fishing business. But this man, John, was a Jew in the first century. And if he knew one thing about God, he knew that God was one. And yet this same author, John, is telling us that there is this Jesus who is God. So as a theologian, which you are this morning you realize that in order to understand the New Testament, in order to understand Jesus, we need to understand that God is one and that God is three. You might think, well, that's, if I use that kind of logic in my mathematics class, I'll fail. You can't be one and three. Well, God is one and God is three. One God and yet three persons. God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And John presents Jesus to us as Nothing less, nothing other than the Son of God who has all the characteristics, all the qualities that belong to God. But in answer to the question, who, who is Jesus, John gives us another answer, which might again seem paradoxical or impossible. Because we've just said that Jesus is God. And now I'm going to tell you that John tells us that Jesus is a human being. Well, which one is it? Is he God or is he human? Because what we know about God and what we know about human beings is so different, isn't it? God is eternal. Human beings are mortal. God is infinite in his knowledge, infinite in his power. And each one of us as a human being is finite. You have finite understanding, finite ability, finite capacity. Well, which one is it? Is Jesus human or is Jesus divine? Well, the answer is yes and yes that he is both human and both divine. Now, as a theologian here this morning, you must grasp this apparent paradox, a seeming contradiction. Because if you were to say to me that Jesus is 50% human and 50% divine, I have to say you're wrong. If you were to say to me that Jesus is 100% divine and 0% human, I'd have to say you're wrong. If you say to me he's 100% human and 0% divine, I'd have to say you're wrong because the Bible presents him as 100% human and 100% divine. The only exception, of course, when we talk about the human being called Jesus is that Jesus Christ never sinned, never did, said, or thought anything that was amiss. John tells us, that which was from the beginning, eternal, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at, and our hands have touched. John says, let me tell you about Jesus, and I can tell you about Jesus because I saw him with my own eyes. Let me tell you about Jesus because I heard him with my own ears. Let me tell you about Jesus because I touched him with my own hands. You see, even in the first century, there were people who were trying to present Jesus in a way that wasn't true. They tried to present Jesus as someone who looked like 
or seemed to be or appeared like a human being but wasn't really flesh and blood. Well, John says, I'm afraid that's not true. I've seen him. We have seen him. We testify. We can tell you. John is an eyewitness of these events. For three years, this young man followed Jesus. For three years, this young man heard him speak, saw him heal, watched him go through life, meeting different people, engaging with different situations. So he presents Jesus to us as one who is completely human. We've heard him, we've seen him, we've touched him with our hands. This is the Jesus that we are proclaiming to you. In verse 7, he uses the phrase, the blood of Jesus. Because the human being that we call Jesus did have a birth. He, did, he was born, he was born in Bethlehem. He lived, he grew up physically like we all do. He grew from being a baby to being a toddler to being a child to being an adolescent to being a, an adult. But Jesus also had a death, a human death. And this is remarkable. Because if you know one thing about God, you know that God is immortal, can't die. And Jesus Christ did die. Verse 7 says, the blood of Jesus. Now, in the Bible, when you speak about blood, it has several different applications, but it can speak about sacrifice, where an animal's blood, remember the time of Exodus, the animal's blood was sprinkled. But when we talk about blood, it's not like you cut your finger and your finger bleeds. Well, that's a, that's a cut. You put a Band-Aid on it and, you know, you'll be in a week or so, the cut will be healed, you'll be fine. But when the Bible speaks about blood, it speaks about blood in the sense that one died in order that the blood was shed. Animals that were used for sacrificial purposes in the Old Testament, their blood, that meant that they had died so that that blood could then be used. The blood of Jesus here is shorthand for the reality that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, eternal, from all eternity, he died there on the cross. So who is Jesus? Jesus is the Son of God. He is God himself. And who is Jesus? Jesus is a human being, just like us, flesh and blood. You could touch him with your hands, you could hear him with your ears, you could see him with your eyes, and yet not like us because he was perfect, perfectly righteous, satisfied God's requirements 100% of the time, 100% of the circumstances, fully and completely man, fully and completely God. But the second question is, what? Okay, we know who you're speaking about, John. We have difficulty grasping these two truths, that he's human and divine, but we we get who you're talking about. But what has Jesus come to do? What does John have to tell us about what Jesus accomplished? Well, we start with that same verse, verse 7, when John says, If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus his Son purifies us from all sin. That the death of Jesus somehow, some way, fixes a problem that we have caused and brings us back into fellowship with the God that we have offended. That's the what. The death of Jesus, the blood that was shed, was shed for a purpose. You see, there's a broken relationship here. There's an organization called Relate. It's an organization that seeks to reconcile married couples. 
Now, it doesn't seek to reconcile happily married couples. It doesn't seek to reconcile a husband and a wife who are getting along just fine. But this organization, Relate, exists for those situations where the marriage relationship has or is about to break down. Maybe there's no communication. Maybe the husband and the wife aren't living together. And maybe today I'm speaking to some people who have experienced that firsthand. But you see, you would never go to a marriage counselor if you didn't have a problem with the marriage. Just like you'd never go to a doctor, except for a checkup, but you'd never go to the emergency room or A&E. You wouldn't go down to Nine Wells and say, look, I'm just doing great and I just wanted to let you know that I'm fine today because they've got other people to see. You don't go to a marriage counselor and say, look, I just wanted to let you know my marriage is going great. No. You see, Jesus came into this world because the key relationship of our life has broken down. And unlike human relationships generally, where if there is a breakdown, there usually is fault on both sides. I know sometimes not, but generally speaking, if a a friendship breaks down, if a relationship breaks down, a husband-wife, a parent-child relationship breaks down, generally, there can be fault on both sides. But this relationship is broken down because there's fault on one side, and that side is you. And that side is me. We have let God down. We have turned our back on God. We have sinned and fallen short. We have rebelled against the God who has created us. We have turned our back on the God who sustains us. And we have closed our ears and shut our eyes to the God who has given everything for us. So that is why Jesus came into this world. He came on a rescue mission. A rescue mission that cost him everything. It cost him his place in heaven next to God his Father, that place of glory, blessing, and honor. It even cost him his very life when he came to this planet to rescue people just like us. The blood of Jesus, which cleanses from sin. Sin has mortal consequences. This is a deadly disease. It's 100% deadly, 100% fatal. And the sin or the disease of sin will cause death. It will either create in you spiritual death that will be confirmed with spiritual separation from God forever and ever, or it costs Jesus death, his death on the cross. But sin always brings death. The question that we have to answer is, who is going to die For our sin, for your sin. Will you die for your sin or will you let Jesus pay that price on your behalf? Because we're told that Jesus, in verse 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Who can do such a thing? Only God. Only God has the power, only God has the authority. Only Jesus can forgive us our sins. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar and his word has no place in us. Jesus Christ, we're told in chapter 2 and verse 1, we're told that we have one who speaks to the Father in our defense, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. I've been in the court system in in in, in Scotland many times. Not in the dock, but in the, in, the, uh, in the public gallery. And I've sat there and I've watched criminal proceedings. 
And you draw your own conclusions. You look at the witnesses, you listen to what they have to say, you say, well, that's, I, I believe him, I, I really don't believe her. You also assess, you assess the prosecutor, the, the PF, how well is he or she doing her job? What about the, the defense lawyer? Are they competent? Are they intelligent? Are they articulate? And you say to yourself, if I was in trouble, I wouldn't have him represent me. But you know what? I kind of like her. I think she's doing a good job. I think she could do a good job for me because if I was in trouble, you know what? I'd want the best lawyer I could find. I'd want the best advocate to represent me. The last thing in the world I would want to do would be to represent myself. You know the old saying, the person who represents himself in court has a fool for a client. And if you want to represent yourself in God's courtroom, if you want to stand before God who sees everything, you want to stand before God who knows everything, you want to stand before God who knows the beginning, middle, and end, and you want to give an account, you want to give a defense, you want to make an explanation, I'm afraid you'd be making a terrible mistake. But let me give you some advice. Engage one who is able to speak on your behalf. Engage one who is qualified to speak on your behalf. Engage someone to be your advocate who has a unique relationship with God the Father. His name is Jesus Christ. And you know what? In verse 2 we're told he is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Not only is the advocate one who speaks, but he's also the atoning sacrifice. He's one who dies. Not only does he speak, but he acts. And not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. When I was doing this uh, children's talk on the credit card, I was asking the children, I said, is there anybody here who can help me pay this bill? And one of the wee boys, Matthew, who was four, he held up his hand. He said, I'll pay it. I said, Matthew, thank you so much. I appreciate that. But I don't think you can do it. I don't think you have this much money to pay this big of a bill. And then I asked one of the other boys, I said, I said, Conrad, do you think your dad would pay this bill for me? He said, no, he won't. <laughs> um, and I said, that's the problem. Because the people that we know who are willing to help are not able to help. And very often the people who are able to help are not willing in this world. But Jesus Christ is uniquely qualified because he is able to help us and he is willing to help us. He has the power, he has the authority, and he's willing to come alongside of us, not just to come alongside of us, but he's willing to take that place of punishment. He's willing to take that place of sacrifice. This verse, verse 2, if you're reading from different versions, you'll see a different word often there. He is the atoning sacrifice. The technical word, and it's not a common English word, but it's an important one, that he is the propitiation for our sins. It's one of these words, like reconciliation, it's a word that suggests a problem. You go to the marriage counselor because your marriage needs reconciliation. You, 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 if you're, you have a dispute with your employer, you might go to arbitration. You might speak to somebody who tries to bring employer and employee together because something has gone wrong. This word propitiation or atoning sacrifice speaks about anger. Nobody likes to be on the receiving end of anger. Nobody likes to have an angry parent speaking to a child. Nobody wants to be in a position where there's an angry spouse speaking to you, an angry employer. 
an angry course organizer or supervisor. Nobody likes to be on the receiving end of anger, especially if that anger is justifiable. But we're told that God is a just God. He's a holy God. He's a righteous God. Yes, he's a loving God. He's a merciful God. He's a kind God. He's a good God. But he has a standard that he demands, that he requires, that he expects, and he deserves. And you see, we haven't kept that standard. So God has a righteous anger at us, at you and at me. Now, this is a terrifying prospect. An angry God looking at us with justifiable and righteous anger and indignation. But the good news in the Bible is this. That Jesus Christ, the Son of God, that Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world, that he willingly and purposefully takes the place of the guilty in order that the guilty can go free. And that the anger of God, the just and righteous anger of God, is poured out not on you and not on me, but on him. God's anger is poured out. God's justice is satisfied. God's righteous requirements are fulfilled through another, through Jesus. And that's why it's essential that he is who he says he is, that he is human, that he's a suitable substitute and a suitable sacrifice, and that he's divine, that he has infinite power, infinite authority, and infinite resources, that he can pay the price for you, for me, for anyone, for everyone. So that's the who, Jesus Fully God, fully human. That's the what that he died deliberately and purposely on the cross to forgive sins. But I'd like to close with this. And this is where it becomes personal. Because you can say, well, this is just a lecture. You're giving me a lecture on Christology. You're giving me a lecture on soteriology. The doctrine of Jesus, the doctrine of salvation. That's very interesting, but it's just a lecture. No. The biblical author here is giving you a sermon. Because he wants you to take this information and apply it. And he has four lessons here. First of all, he says that he wants you to be part of God's family. He wants you to be part of God's fellowship. He says this in verse 4, or in verse 3 and 4. He says, we proclaim what we have seen and heard, so that you also may have fellowship with us, and our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. We write this to make our joy complete. When men and women, boys and girls, come to know Jesus Christ, they become part of this worldwide fellowship. They become part of this huge family. And John is saying when that happens, there's joy. There's joy in heaven. There's joy on earth. There's joy within the fellowship. So become part of this family. Become part of this fellowship. John says he wants his joy to be complete. The leadership of this church has a great desire to see not only Dundee reached with the gospel, not only for people to hear the message, but the great desire is that men and women respond to the gospel, that the joy of the Lord becomes their joy, the forgiveness of the gospel becomes their forgiveness, the grace of God becomes their grace, and the joy then of this congregation grows as the number of people who know and love the Lord Jesus grows. So become part of the family. But also it's a message of beware. There is darkness in this world. Beware of the dark. I don't know about you, but when I was a kid, I had a nightlight in my room because I hated the room being completely dark. Even if there was a small light you knew, or if the door was a a jar and you could see the light of the hall, it was comforting because darkness is scary. 
And John is saying here that there is darkness, it's spiritual darkness. Verse 5, God is light, in him there is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with him, yet walk in the darkness. You can't have it both ways. You can't walk with Jesus and walk in the darkness. You can't live in the light and live in the dark. So John is saying, look out, beware. He says in his gospel in John chapter 10, verse 10, he says there's someone called the thief. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. That's what the evil one wants to do. He wants to take away your joy. He wants to take away your peace. He wants to take away your very life. He wants to take away your future. He wants to take away everything that is good. He promises everything, but he delivers nothing. And Jesus goes and says, but I have come. I have come that they may have life and have it more abundantly. So beware of the darkness. Second, or thirdly, be honest. Be honest with yourself and be honest with God. If we claim to be without sin, don't make that mistake. I don't think anyone here would make that mistake, would you? Would you claim to be perfect? Would you claim to be sinless? Would you claim to be perfectly righteous? Would you say that you don't need forgiveness? Would you say that you don't need the grace of God? Would you say that you don't need the blood of Jesus, the sacrifice and the substitution of Jesus? John says, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves. In verse 10, if we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar. You see, when we deceive ourselves, we also try to deceive God, but we can't do that. You may very well fool yourself. You remember the words of Abraham Lincoln. He said, you can fool some of the people all of the time. You can fool all of the people some of the time. You can't fool all of the people all of the time. But I'll tell you what, you can't fool God any of the time. It's absolutely impossible. You can fool yourself. You can fool me. You can fool others. You can't fool him. So be honest. Be honest with God and be honest with, with yourself. But finally this, be like Jesus. That's the application here. This is who Jesus is. This is what Jesus did. And now simply do this. Verse 6 of chapter 2. Whoever claims to live in him must walk as Jesus did. This is the great application. This is who Jesus is. This is what he did. And therefore, this is what you are to do to walk like he did. Now, there's a very big difference between a fad and a lifestyle. You know what a fad is. Something that comes and something that goes. When I became a Christian 20 20 years ago, my friends back home said, it's just a fad. It'll pass. Well, thankfully, 20 years have passed, and it's still, it's it's a very long fad if it's a fad. But I would suggest now, after 20 years, this is part of who I am. This is my lifestyle. This is my faith that is expressing itself in life, not perfectly far from it. But you know what a fad is? 1960, summer of 1960, the big song of that summer was a song by a man called Chubby Checker. And he encouraged the nation and the world to dance a dance called The Twist. That's a fad. It's popular that summer. You can still do it. It's possible to still dance The Twist. I've done it myself. But, you know, that's a fad. It comes and it goes. It was popular for a season. And then people moved on to a new dance, new, new song, new fad. You see it with technology. You see it with television shows. You know what it's like. When you come to know Jesus Christ, it's a change of heart. It's a change of life. It's a change of direction. 
It's a change of priorities. You simply now live. You simply now walk. You simply now conform yourself to none other than Jesus. I'm not telling you to walk like I walk. I'm not telling you to walk like Davidson, David Robertson walks. I'm not telling you to walk like the Apostle John walked. But the message of the Bible, whoever claims to live in Jesus, in him, must walk as Jesus did. You can't leave today without knowing that God is speaking to you. That God is calling you to himself. He's challenging you, but he's also encouraging you. He says there's life, and that life is found in Jesus. It's a new heart. It's a new life. It's a new direction. It's a new lifestyle. Listen to the message. Know this Jesus that John is telling us about. Understand what Jesus has done on the cross for you. Engage him to be your advocate. Engage him to be your spokesman. Accept his sacrifice on your behalf. And then in turn, have nothing to do with darkness. Have nothing to do with the old life, the old way, but have everything to do with Jesus. Because the more that you know about Jesus, it should translate to the more that you are like Jesus. Your attitude, your motivation, your desire your priorities become more and more like his. If you claim to know him, if you claim to love him, you do what he commands and you walk as Jesus walked. Thank you for listening to this sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee. If you found this sermon has been helpful to you, please help us to continue building up and assisting the people of God. Visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk For information and training on persuasive evangelism and how to share your faith biblically, please visit the website of SOLAS, the Centre for Public Christianity, at solas-cpc.org. Once again, that website address is solas-cpc.org. Dot .org Thanks for listening.